take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 6. As you are turning to Amos chapter 6, that would give you a few minutes to turn off your phones. Not that I'm trying to squelch series involvement in, uh, in our gatherings, but that would be for the best. All right, Amos chapter 6, St- still in this third message from Amos to the leadership in Israel, identifying their ongoing sin issues in, in particular calling them out on just their woeful lack of knowledge, their ignorance, especially of the day of the Lord. And so Amos declares two woes upon them. We've looked at the first one in verses 16 through 27 of chapter 5. And so tonight, let's look beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalnei and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I wonder if anyone here has ever made the mistake of using one or more of the following phrases only to regret it. For example, making a statement like this, well, there's no need to get this done right away because... There's plenty of time. Anyone ever uttered that? There's plenty of time. How about this? Don't worry. I've planned it all out. So what could go wrong? All right. How about this? Upon hearing some sad news event or reading it in a paper or hearing it from a friend, you say, wow, what a sad story. 
I'm so glad nothing like that will ever happen to me. That, you know, there's, there's probably a few more phrases that are kind of like that, and all of these phrases share something in common. That they, they describe what many would perhaps identify as a naive optimism. Some, some might even say something like, you know, be, be careful, don't talk so fast, right? Don't be so quick to simply suggest this is how things are going to go. I think we can all be guilty of it, right? Especially when things are going fine, at least relatively speaking, and, and, and what we can get lulled into believing if everything, especially the material and physical circumstances of our lives, if all of this is kind of going well, we can just kind of get lulled into thinking it'll always go well. And, and especially if, 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 in fact, we seem to be enjoying life, we can really get ourselves in that kind of position. Of course, this is a problematic way to view life because people who, who walk through life with this kind of just unbridled kind of optimism can often miss events, circumstances, choices, decisions, whatever it may be, that will lead them into dangerous and potentially devastating consequences. Now, of course, I'm I'm not encouraging us to be the other way, right? I'm not encouraging an unbridled pessimism either. I think there's probably a balance in between there, but we recognize there can be great danger in and not just taking stock of things as they are. There can be a danger in just assuming that everything is going to be just fine. Now, this can become even more serious when the group of people assuming that everything's going to be fine, it's all going to work out, that'll never happen for me, when that group of people is, in fact, God's people living in sin. This is exactly where the people of Israel are. They've probably uttered phrases similar to this, or at least something that would have been of a kind during the time of Amos, that part of the problem going on in Israel is Amos is prophesying to them that that they they are in the midst of the reign of Jeroboam II. This was a time of significant prosperity. So life is good economically. Militarily, they, they're well protected. The defenses, they think anyway, are good. Life is good. The, the, the rich are getting richer, and, and everything's booming. They think all is well. The last thing that is on their mind is that they are in the crosshairs of God's judgment. That, that's a concept that's not even on the table for them. They, they don't see any way in which that could ever be true. They're God's chosen ones, right? They're the, they're the favored nation, to be sure. Messages of judgment coming from a prophet, maybe the folks down in Judah need to worry about it, but surely not the northern kingdom, surely not the folks in Israel, right? So, so Amos's ministry is an important one because part of it is focused on a group of people who are absolutely oblivious to the danger that they're in. They think nothing like what you're talking about, Amos, will ever happen to us. Life is too good. And so one of the issues then that Amos is, I think, sent, son of God, to address for them is the fact that all is not good. That that in fact, not only is 
are they under the threat of judgment? By the time we get to Amos's message, Amos is making it clear these people are not going to repent. They're not going to do anything about it. Amos is like the final word to say, all right, here's what's coming, almost like a record to make it clear when the judgment comes, you people knew about this ahead of time. This is, this is coming. Judgment is going to come upon them. And so in order to, to emphasize this, we, we noted in the midst of this third, this third message of Amos, there are two features to it that are interesting. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, Amos opened up with a lament. We walked our way through that. In other words, Amos went ahead and gave them a way to weep and grieve when God did judge. He gave them a prophetic lament. Go ahead and start getting ready for this. Practice up, all right? Go ahead and get your weeping and wailing on because that's what's about to happen. And then he shifts into another kind of prophetic tool, and that is the declaration of woe, which is most often used at people who are engaged in serious rebellion, about to face the judgment of God, but don't see themselves as in any danger. And so two woes are pronounced upon Israel. And the fundamental issue that is of Amos's concern and, and what we see in the verses that we just read and, again, what we were looking at in verses 16 through 27, the fundamental concern is they do not understand the day of the Lord, that they, they have misunderstood its significance and why it should matter to them. So this is what we've been looking at. you got notes here. So the focus has been for the last several weeks in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 8. The prophet is going to pronounce woe on Israel because of her sin and her ignorance of the day of the Lord. It is an important message that God's people should not take for granted God's favor upon them. And and so Amos is going to identify two false views of the day of the Lord. And so these first few bits we'll go through pretty quickly. They're already on your notes with blanks filled in because this is what we've done for the last few weeks just as a run-up to it. Number one, the first misunderstanding they have is they misunderstand the nature of the day of the Lord. They misunderstand the nature of it. Two issues in particular. Number, number one, or letter A, rather than it being a day of victory, it's going to be a day of judgment. And so, so we noted that, like beginning in, in verse 16, or verse seven, uh, no, verse 18, uh, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? In other words, there, there, are, there are those in Israel who just assume that the day of the Lord is going to be a good thing. They have no, they, 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 they can't conceive of the possibility that the day of the Lord would be judgment directed upon them. So they're calling for it. They long for the day of the Lord because they think this is the day that their enemies will be vanquished. All those pagan countries that we talked about that were the focus of chapters like 1 and 2, all those pagan nations surrounding them, this is what they thought. Day of the Lord, bring it on. But, but Amos makes it clear, no, no, you, you shouldn't long for the day of the Lord because it's going to be like a guy who runs away from a lion and then runs away from a bear and collapses against a wall in his house and gets, gets bit by a snake uh, because this is the day that's going to be directed at you. God is going to, to judge you. Then we looked at the second part of it, and this was last week. Rather than being rewarded as faithful people, they will be judged as a rebellious people. And so we noted that section where God says how He hates and despises 
their festivals, their, their feast days. He says their worship, their songs are like noise. Here are people who think they're going through the ritual of the, the, the religion, of the law, right? Going through that ritual practice is sufficient. They think they're doing the right things. God, God is making it clear. The, the problem is there is no real justice and righteousness among you. And so, again, judgment is going to be poured out upon you. They, they think it's going to be a time of reward. It's not. It's going to be a time of deep chastisement for their rebellion. All right, let's go on to number two. The second misunderstanding that they have, they misunderstand the timing of the day of the Lord. They misunderstand its timing. Again, they, they, they assume, well, Maybe if even if they're listening to Amos say these things, they might even assume, all right, so, so whatever you're saying here, uh, but that, it's not going to happen anytime soon. In other words, life is good here. Clearly, God's blessing is upon us that they have no idea that there is, there is an imminent threat waiting for them. And so notice how he describes it. Notice the second woe being declared in verse 1 of chapter 6. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Interesting little note here. This is one of the places where Amos now includes the entire nation. He identifies Mount Zion, or Zion, which undoubtedly is a reference to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, that's the southern kingdom, right? That, that's, that's Jerusalem, that's Judah and Benjamin, that's the southern two came, um, tribes, and, and Amos has primarily been focusing on Israel, the northern ten tribes. But in this instance, he makes it clear uh, Judah's not going to get away with their sin either. And so, he declares woe on both Zion and then Mount Samaria, those who are at ease in Mount Zion and those who trust in Mount Samaria. Now, that, that's an interesting statement because part of the problem in Israel is they had built unlawful places of worship on the mountain in Samaria and certainly felt like that was sufficient, right? We've talked about this more than, on more than one occasion. The, the altar... The, the altars and the sacrifices, these were clearly outlined how that's to be built, what's to be done, and it was to be done in the temple, in Jerusalem, all that was clearly laid out, but they're not going to go to Jerusalem, they're not going to go to the temple, so they built their own. And we have every reason to believe, at least for some of it, they're sacrificing to some degree as the law would have suggested, but it's a false altar, and so they are trusting in Mount Samaria by the way, you see this show up in the New Testament, right? The woman at the well. This goes all the way back to passages like this, you know, where she's in this conversation with Jesus, and she says, well, I know that some of you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here on this mountain, right? And so this is what she's getting at, the same kind of thing. So they've trusted in the false locations of worship they have created. And so then notice how, how Amos calls them out. Those of you who are at ease, and he identifies them as notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So, so again, here's this, you know, farmer from the, the sticks uh, who's come to the powerful people, and he's clearly identifying these are in positions of power. 
And then, then, he, then he does this, and this is a really interesting part. Verse 2, he says, Go over to Colnay and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. All, all three of these locations relate to some of those pagan nations surrounding them. He's done this before, by the way. At one point in Amos, Amos called on the leaders of these nations, the pagan nations, to come look and watch and see what God's about to do to Israel. Now, Amos is calling on the notable people of Israel, go down and look at these locations, these pagan locations, the implication being God has unleashed judgment on them before. There are ways in which the judgment of God has been poured out on them. And so, he says to them, go over and see these great powers, or what used to be great powers. And then he asks this question, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Now, you know, at maybe a, a first reaction to that might, might be something like this. Oh, well, here's the argument he's making. If God would have judged them like he judged them, surely then God would judge Israel. But when you put it that way, that doesn't seem like a very good argument, right? I mean, that doesn't really make sense, and it wouldn't make sense to the, to the people of Israel. In fact, here's what I think the force of the verse is. When he asked the question, are you better than these kingdoms, what do you think the people of Israel would have said to that question? You better believe it. What a silly question. Of course we're better. Our worst is better than their best. Of course, we're better. Amos isn't really asking the question. It's rhetorical, right? This is, this, is, this is God teaching a point. When he says, are you better than those kingdoms? Here's what he's saying. You're not better than those kingdoms. So go take a look at what God did over there. Don't think you're going to get out of this thing. Stop living at ease at Zion. Stop living at ease on Mount Samaria. Stop trusting in it. Go and look what God does when he judges. And he's no respecter of persons when he judges sin. He'll come and judge you too. You are no better than these kingdoms. Because of the sin and rebellion, he's going to do to you what he did to them. I don't care how great your territory is. I don't care how big you've become. Now, the judgment's coming. Woe to you who think all is well. All is not well. And then he goes on to explain this, I think, even further. Verse 3. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near. <clears throat> now, in most translations, at least New King James, you might note in verse 3, the word woe to, that's, that's italicized, so that means the translators have provided that, meaning that, that in the original text, woe doesn't show up again in Hebrew. Instead, that's kind of the grammatical construction. It's, it's based on verse 1, and based on the construction of it, then verse 3 is adding to it, all right? So that's why it's added in there. And some may have a translation where woe doesn't show up, but, but that's, that's, that's the intent, all right? He's, he's still continuing to declare woe on them and to, to do so to those who are putting far off the day of doom. And what that means is to those who think it, it, we've got plenty of time, that they're also thinking that's never going to happen to us. 
And we got plenty of time. It's way, it's way off to put that off. And then he uses this rather vivid image. He said, you're putting off the day of doom, but you're causing the seed of violence to come near. In other words, the violence, and it's kind of, I think, probably a play on ideas here. The violence they have inflicted on the poor and oppressed, that same kind of uh, of, of harsh action will come upon them by God. In other words, they, they, are in, they, are, they are causing this to get closer and closer. They're pushing the day off. They think this is not coming for us. It's way in the future. And with, with every day they're doing that and they're still oppressing the poor and engaging in false religion and living in sin and apathy and all that they're doing, he's saying you're just causing that seed of violence to inch closer and closer to you. And then he describes them. Beginning in verse 4, he describes how they are at ease. Those who lie on beds of ivory, which doesn't really sound very comfortable, all right, but, but take the imagery for what it is. In other words, that they have so much money, to put it this way, they have, they have so much material prosperity that they're making beds out of ivory. I, I, would, I would liken it to the, to the story that I heard about, about one Christian leader who had a gold toilet in their bathroom, all right? That, that's kind of how you think about this. Here they are, they have such an abundance that they're, they're, they're using ivory to make beds. You stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, all right? Translate that into day. You've stretched out a hammock in the backyard. You got a glass of half tea, half lemonade, good Arnold Palmer, and you got a lamb and brisket on the grill. All right? Life is good. And this is not like a special weekend. This is every day. Every day, you're just lounging around. That's why I was describing them. You are living as if every day is vacation. In fact, look how much time they have. Verse 5 who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. You sit around singing songs, picking at your ukulele, all right, and making up new instruments. And by the way, I think Amos is using a bit of sass here to say more, more like this. You're sitting around singing songs and making up medallies medleys, you're inventing instruments like you're David or something. I think that's kind of the intent you should say it with. Maybe I'm inflecting my own personality into it, but that's really what it sounds like. Like, who do you think you are? It'd be like you, you know, painting your ceiling, and I'd say, oh, who are you? What are you doing, Michelangelo? All right, that's kind of what it is. Who do you think you are? You think you're David? You think you can write songs? You think you can create instruments? That's how much time you have. You sit around, just make up stuff. Then look at verse 6. Who drink wine from bowls. So they, 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 they're living in the lap of luxury and they are unrestrained. You anoint yourselves with the best of ointments. So, so again, it's just language of pure luxury. But, that, but then he delivers then the, the contrast but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. And Joseph here would be a stand-in then for the people, for the nation itself, 
And, and, I, and I, I would suggest the affliction is perhaps, you know, looking at, at a couple of different things. One, the ways in which they have taken advantage of and oppressed the poor, they've, they've, they've used them as easy targets. The reason why they have ivory beds and bowls to drink wine out of is because they've taken from the poor in order to have what they have. So they've not been grieved over the affliction that is being heaped upon the people. And I think it could also speak to they're not grieved over the sins that are in Israel. They're just relaxing, singing, eating, drinking. It's a good thing people aren't like that today, all right? People are a lot more focused, right? Or maybe people are exactly the same as they were in the days of Amos. And so notice what he says in verse 7. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. In other words, judgment's going to come for them. They're going to go into captivity as well. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Isn't it interesting? You have in, in the same message, God hating two things. Again, that's rare language in the Bible, right? As we've already talked about, just like your mama said, hate is a strong word. Be careful how you use the word hate. So when God says he hates something, you better take notice of it because it's a big deal. He hates their festivals, their worship, and he hates the palaces. In other words, the ways in which they are engaging in worship and then the responsibility of the leadership. He hates it. And so he says, therefore, I'll deliver up the city and all that's in it. Again, we're seeing the same judgment. Amos has referenced this on more than one occasion, and it's still the same. Judgment's going to come from a foreign power, and we know it's going to be the Assyrians. They're going to come in, and they're, they're going to, just like the Babylonians will do a century and a half or two later, that they're, the Assyrians are going to come in, level everything, and people will be scattered and or taken into captivity and taken back as trophies of war. And so it's, it's pretty devastating set of circumstances once again, but, but the focus of this particular set of messages is a way to, to wake the people up to say, look, you don't realize how serious this is. You think this is, I'm not talking about you, but I am, I'm talking about you. This is, this is your problem, and you, you will face then this judgment to come. Now, as we wrap up this part of it, I, I, I want to conclude, and every now and then I think it's helpful to do this, I want to give you four takeaways from this part of the message, going back to verse 18 of chapter 5. Four takeaways from the message, because I think it's good that we take time to intentionally discern points of application, because a book like Amos is just so far removed from like our, our day-to-day lives, right? I mean, we, it, it was written a long time ago. You know, we're talking um, 27, 800 years ago. Uh, what, what, what does this have to do with us? Uh, so four takeaways from these verses that I think help us to see why the words of Amos given to the people of Israel, different set of circumstances and context, but still matter to us. So more blanks to fill in. Number one, going through the mechanics of worship does not ensure the quality of worship. Just going through the mechanics of worship. 
that's kind of a principle we've already dwelt on a bit, but I just wanted to make it a little bit more formal in a statement like this. It's just good for us to remember. Because for all that we might look back at, say, the law and rituals and maybe even think about other denominations or religious groups and think, wow, I can't believe they have to do this, this, and this and go through this, this, and this. The truth is, as Baptists, we got plenty of rituals that we can engage in that we think just engaging in the ritual is sufficient. Just walking through the doors, going to Sunday school, being a part of a committee, singing the songs, standing when I'm told to stand, sitting when I'm told to sit, listening when there's prayer. If I'm called on, I'll pray. Listening to the word, may, may, you know, being a part of times like this, we can get into a mindset where we assume going through the mechanics of this thing is sufficient. It's not. Somebody could show up every single week and sing every single song and not have their hearts right with God. You you can be in a position. That's what these people were engaging in the rituals. They were following the feast days. They were doing sacred assemblies. They were offering burnt offerings and grain offerings. They were singing songs. God says, I hate it. I hate it. And your your music is noise to me. So we, we should always be on guard for the ways in which our own worship can, can just become mechanical. Ways in which that maybe we have this other stuff in our life that definitely needs to be dealt with. We're not dealing with it. This other sin, rebellion, whatever it may be. Thinking if we just, we just come and we just do this thing, that, that this makes me a better Christian. But that's not how this works. And so we, we should be on guard against this. Amos is a good warning about this. Those, those verses, verses 21 through 23, I think are just really strong in chapter 5. And we do well to think carefully about it. Number two, to champion justice is to champion righteous living before God and with others. This is just a follow-up of kind of how we finished it last week. You know, we took, and we took a good 15 minutes to do this, even went a little bit long. But that statement in verse 24 of chapter 5, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So we unpack that to demonstrate what is biblical justice, especially in light of how that language is used today. And what we mean by this, I say what we, what the Bible means by justice is this language of living rightly, of living righteously, of living justly, and that, that this influences how I relate to God, and it influences how I relate to you, and how I relate to anybody else who's out there. I relate to God as the one who is worthy of my utmost devotion, and I relate to you as a fellow image bearer of God. And that's how we should treat each other. And we should champion that. We should be committed to biblical justice, where justice is defined as justice but strays from biblical justice. It's going to be something less than this, and I would contend ultimately unhelpful and potentially then even destructive. And so as God's people, we want to make sure that we've got a firm handle on what this means, what it means to be people who champion this, because this is what was going on in Amos' day, as we've said all along. The issue was not that there were poor people present, and not that we should want people to remain in poverty, but that was not the issue of Amos' message. The issue was those who had 
we're, we're, we're increasing their had by targeting those who did not have and leaving them with less. This was oppression. Especially given what we've already noted about the period of time, they were living in luxury. They're, they're building beds out of ivory. So there's, there's no need to target the poor. So this is, this is just pure sin and rebellion to do it this way. So we want to champion justice, make sure it is biblical justice. All right, number three, material prosperity is not necessarily a sign of divine blessing. And notice how I, how I word this. It's very intentional. Material prosperity is not necessarily a sign of it. Now, can it be? Can, do we enjoy material blessings because God has been good to us? Well, sure, of course. But are there people in this world who have material blessings and we would not identify them as having God's divine favor upon them? Of course. For the last two weeks, we've seen a parade of it, right? The first parade was the Oscars. The second parade was the Grammys, all right? If you want to look and see if people have got material prosperity who probably need to hear a message like Amos, right? But we, we wouldn't identify this then as, as, as divine blessing just because there's material prosperity. But this is a danger. It was a danger for the people of God. I think it's a danger for the people in Amos's day. This is what they are assuming. They would assume, I, I'm sleeping in a bed of ivory. I drink my wine out of a bowl, all right? That's how much I've got. So surely, God loves me. Clear, clearly. Again, I'm, I'm eating lamb and I'm eating steak every night. Yeah, God loves me. God's blessing me. Maybe, maybe not. And so we, we need to be aware that material prosperity is not necessarily a sign of divine blessing. And perhaps should be aware of the fact there could be ways in which material blessing can lull us into thinking all is well, when it may not be. And what, what I'm saying is not necessarily on the material side, I mean in, this, in a spiritual sense. That, that's, that's always a potential threat for the people of God. All right, number four, last one. The only thing more dangerous than sin is being comfortable with sin. I mean, sin's bad, but being comfortable with that sin is really bad. That's the other way I guess you could say it. It's bad to sin. It's really bad to be okay with it. And, and Amos reminds us of this because this is what they're doing. They definitely are okay with their sin because they're assuming these other bits must indicate God's all right with us, but God's not okay with them. And so then to, to allow sin to just go on and on and on, to get comfortable with it, that is something that we should seriously guard against. Again, I, you know, I, I continue to find Amos uh, to be uh, such, such a helpful prophet, uh, such a timely prophet. And, and, and as I continue to read him, you know, I, just, I've, I find then his, his own backstory being one that's really helpful. So here's this guy with really nothing to lose, uh, who's just really willing to be used of God to be God's hammer, to be God's shotgun, right? 
uh, to just send, you know, buckshot spread throughout whoever he's talking to and hitting whoever's in his way. Uh, and then eventually he's just going to go back to the farm uh, and, and just let the, the, you know, just let God's word do what God's word does. And so in this case, pronouncing these woes upon them and giving us this kind of instruction. All right, next week, we'll be in the Family Life Center and uh, continue on in chapter six and continue to see the message that God has for his people through the prophet Amos. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us and we're grateful that we have had an opportunity to pray together, to study your word. We do thank you for this word and may we give uh, our attention to it. May we allow your word, not just Amos, but any ways in which uh, you by your spirit lead us to, uh, to, to engage with your word, that, that it, it, would, it would do in us what needs to be done, giving us an awareness of who we are and, and how we should be living and how we should love you, how we should love others. Just thank you for these who've come and their willingness to be a part of this time together. Pray they would know your blessing upon them. I pray that you would grant them wisdom as they live the lives you've called them to live, that they would do so faithfully into your glory. And I pray that you'd gather us back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.